0: Well, I'm here today with Paul Cheek, founder and CEO of Vempathy. Did I get that right, the saying? Yeah, that you did. Okay. And uh, C. Lombardo is VP of Product and Experience. Welcome, guys. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Good to be here. How do you know if you're building a product that people will want and use? The answer, of course, is you can't really know with any certainty but asking your users is always a really good place to start. Not all product teams though, particularly smaller cross-functional ones, have the luxury of a full-time user researcher. And even if you have a team that prioritizes and understands the value of user research, you can still be left with hours and hours of usability tests and screen recordings to analyze, when all you really want is to identify those short clips that reveal customer delight or frustration. That's where Vempathy comes in. Led by this week's guests Paul Cheek and C. Todd Lombardo, Vempathy is making user testing faster for teams by combining video analysis of user testing with artificial intelligence to deliver instant user experience insights and recommendations. Both of these guys were at UXFest back in June where they had the opportunity to show their technology and click their own user feedback. They really know technology and user research, so you should definitely check out what they're working on. I've included a link at the end of the interview in case you want to try out their tool for free. I'll just start off kind of like I always do, just asking you to tell me a little bit about your backgrounds. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm a serial tech entrepreneur
1: and software engineer. I just love building cool things. I've started a few companies in the past and, you know, kind of found this trend of user research to be really really interesting uh, it 's something that i've wound up having to do as an engineer uh, and while that 's not my full time job uh, you know I found a lot of problems with it and I love to solve problems and build companies around those problems um, on this journey i 've been lucky enough to uh, to meet c Todd uh, quite randomly actually um, <laughs> and you know we sat down we had coffee and and oddly enough, we both walked in thinking nothing would come of it and you know here we are today uh, it 's been a it 's been a you know, great working with them. Great story, and uh, yeah, happy to happy to be able
0: to go build build some cool stuff with them.
2: So I think I'm no stranger to most of your audience. I think they know me from my days as design chief design strategist at FreshTilled Soil. But um, you've
0: even been known to host the show. I, I the know. I'm a former former I, show host. When I, I twist your arm, you know, strong enough.
2: I know, right? Uh, so so yeah, um, you know, product and design guy for many years, and uh, you know, sort of jumped ship from FreshTilled Soil and. Um, not that I didn't love you guys, I do, still do. Uh, but um, kind of enjoying the idea of rolling my sleeves up and getting back into um, really in the thick of it. So uh, um, excited to be working really like, really into the nitty gritty of, of product with, with Paul, it's great.
0: You talked, Paul, about having done user research before as an engineer, That I haven't heard that very often how does... I mean, I certainly engineers are and or should be interested in the user, intensely so. But in my experience, and I'm definitely not saying this is a good thing, there tends to be this... Uh, maybe in old school is a good way to say it, it tends to be a wall between engineers and the users. And I don't, I, don't, I, I think that's a bad thing, but you came at it uh, from the jump, it sounds like, being close to it. Yeah, absolutely. There's generally
1: a, a huge wall um, between engineering and product design experience and the, the end customer. Um, and. I've always worked on small cross-functional teams building products, and in those scenarios, there generally is not a full-time researcher. Meaning that somebody needs to step up to the plate and and tackle that challenge of figuring out what the user really wants. You know, and it, in a lot of cases, I just kind of had to jump into it, um, which I love doing because I'd rather be building a product uh, that I know people will use as opposed to a product that you know, nobody really cares for.
0: Yeah, it was interesting because back, way back in the day when I was running. Um certain products as a product manager there was this real or perceived idea that you don't want your engineers to talk to the users and i don't know if it was we didn't want the engineers to be uh distracted by things we didn't consider important you know stick to the roadmap we already know what the user wants which is kind of hilarious and sad when you think about it or we thought for some reason that our customers and our users didn't want to talk to our engineers, which, again, also is kind of dumb. And I found whenever it happened, even if it was by accident, I would have engineers come to me with a brilliant solution to what, it, what they were hearing directly from the user. They'd say, well, they're complaining about these three things or they're asking for these three things, I'll take the positive. And they would say, you know, we can do that very easily. I can do this, this, and this. And I'd say, okay, cool, go do that. And so it's never, it never was clear to me why we created this wall, um, but it's interesting that you that you had that from the jump. I think there's a couple of reasons for that.
2: One is the engineers aren't necessarily trained to be interfacing with customers and interacting and learning how to distill feedback. Because as your your example of well the customer asked for this, and if an engineer sometimes will will jump onto that and say oh I can build that, but that not be maybe the right thing because customers don't necessarily know exactly what to ask for. Um, customers aren't always um, trained in knowing how to distill what they think they want versus what they actually want. Um, so I think that's one, one reason that that happens. Um, another reason is, is sometimes is engineers don't know exactly what to ask, or they'll just say, tell me what you want. <clears throat> and, and I think that's, that's historical, uh, because now we're starting to see teams that are much more cross-functional, like Paul referenced, um, and, and when you hear about the, our friends at Pluralsight with Discovery, you discovery know, bringing the whole team in and participating in that user research, we're starting to see more and more of that cross-functional, and so that's then kind of the way of the future or actually the way of the present and the future,
0: right? Yeah, I think that's a good point. You're right. Absent would be the background and experience and training to, un- to understand how to peel that onion. Um, and I think the key is we've gone from a model where it is, you know, this person shall not talk to users and this person must to, you know what, everyone needs to talk to them and everyone needs to hear from them, preferably together so there can be a discussion about it, Uh, but let's dispense with this notion that it's only the domain of this person or that person. Yeah, agreed. For sure. And, you know, if you look at it
1: from the other side, uh, people come to me all the time and they say, how do I convince my engineering team to do X, Y, or Z um, and not, you know, put up a stink about it? Well, the way to do it is to give them some evidence, show them what users are saying, show them what the customers are saying, even if the engineering team is not doing the research themselves, even if they're just getting the the report on the research. And, and you know they can see what customers are saying. They're going to be much more driven to go build that feature or make that change.
2: I, I can add on to that point. It's, it's not even just uh, showing evidence to engineers. It's showing evidence to people who may be uh, higher up in an organization, depending on how big your organization is. I remember an example at Constant Contact where we we had an executive with a, a very strong-willed idea and some data to back it up. It was anecdotal data, um, but it was still data nonetheless. It was, was um, about a mo- particular mobile app idea, and rather than going off and build it, which she was really ready, ready to, f- to just fund the project and, and get it going. We said, hey, let's, let's do a design sprint first and get some evidence, and we video recorded um, the tests and showed them some clips of like, hey, here's what they said when they saw this interacting with this prototype. And she, it really helped change her mind, like, oh, right, th- we are. this isn't the right idea. This isn't the right thing. Um, and it helped build that empathy
0: uh, for the end user where there wasn't initially. So you said the word empathy. I'm going to throw a V in front of it and ask the question now, what, what is Vempathy? What, the word itself, how would you come up with that? And what does Vempathy, the company, do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Vempathy stands for video empathy. Uh, we're really focused on video analysis and helping companies build empathy with their users. Um, because ultimately, if you can understand your customers' emotions, what that's going to help you do is is you know better cater to their needs. You know, their emotions drive their decisions. Um, and if you can if you can change those decisions, then you're ultimately going to have a great impact on your bottom line. So what we're doing is we're, we're basically analyzing video files, usability testing video files, to show you how your customers feel and when they feel that way so that you can then uh, basically react and, and make changes uh, accordingly. We're doing this by quantifying qualitative data, so by giving you numbers and figures that are a little bit more palatable to you know other stakeholders, whether it's an engineer, a designer, or a, a, an executive within your organization. Uh, if we give you numbers that kind of back up why... Uh, certain decisions need to be made around your product, um, then you're going to have everybody uh, much more on board than you would otherwise.
2: And, and I think another thing that that does is it helps to reduce bias, right? A lot of this type of research, um, you're, it's very qualitative in nature. I mean, we're kind of quantifying the qualitative, as, as Paul said, but also you may have a researcher who's, um, or even a team that's just looking for a particular kind of data. And with qualitative data, you can kind of cherry pick and pull anecdotes to, to help uh, bias your story in one way or the other and that may, this can help reduce that because we're actually quantifying things and this is how frustrated they were, this is how happy they were, this is how delighted they were, um, and this is where they were delighted. So we have a, a way to reduce that bias, it's a little bit a little bit more neutral for the researcher to
0: then present that data elsewhere and they can actually get um, deeper, better insights. And is the bias reduction because you've got it on video or because you're somehow translating not just what they say, but how they say it and what they look like when they're saying it, to say, okay, yes, they said they like this, but we've noted that they're really just okay with it.
2: I think that, yeah, there's and when you're doing a UX research, you will see that somebody might be shaking their head yes or no, but saying something the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. So they might be saying, oh, this is totally great, and I'm shaking my head no, right? Yeah. And that's something that you want to detect, and you might be able to physically see that as uh, um, a researcher watching a video, but we're able to, to detect things like that, and say, oh, that's actually, the tone of voice is different. So we, we look at their facial expression, mm-hmm. and so we, that's one part of the algorithm, and Paul can probably talk a little bit more detail about this. And then the um, tone analysis, like what's the inflection of their tone and tone of voice? And then what's, we look at the context of all the different words they say in a sentiment analysis. And so we pull those things together and say, okay, here's how confident we are as this person is frustrated, happy, sad, et cetera. We can put a a numerical value to it. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, but
1: ultimately, I mean, I think one of the big takeaways that, that I had from from UX Fest was that bias creates blind spots, and that's what yeah. we're really focused on is trying to reduce those blind spots. Um, it, it's it's a huge problem in UX research, and, and when you can even subconsciously uh, use that bias to, yeah, like C. Todd said, cherry pick from those findings, um, ultimately you may be making the wrong product decision.
0: What is the problem or the problems that you're trying to solve? My guess is it's not just to give companies and product owners and product teams the ability to do user testing. It's more specific than that. Yeah,
1: it's definitely more specific than that. You know, anybody can go out and do user
0: testing now. The problem that we're solving is we're helping make
1: user testing faster, okay. um, more relatable for the other stakeholders involved besides the researcher. And we're also solving the problem of bias involved in qualitative research. Okay.
0: How are your audiences currently either solving or attempting to solve this now? So a lot of what what UX research does, and I think this is no stranger,
2: uh, no secret to most of your audience, is that you might um, create a prototype or even just using your product um, and either have some remote testing, perhaps. Maybe you send somebody a link and ask them to perform a handful of different tasks, or you could do um, in-person, moderated or unmoderated type of testing and um, you might watch the videos, watch the screencasts, and, and then make some, draw some conclusions based on did they complete the task, did they not complete the task, how frustrated did they look, where, where, they, where did they get stuck trying to complete these tasks, um, and oftentimes it's very very manual intensive and, and takes a lot of time and energy and effort from the researchers, and so we're trying to automate some of that and saying, okay, we could, you could do this on moderated, and we'll actually give you a report from that, so you could, rather than having to watch, say, you know, 10, 10 minute videos, we, you can, send out the link get the report back and say oh here's the three places where they're so these are unmoderated they they can yeah they're unmoderated okay you could use it moderated too but we have it set up so you can actually
0: set prompts and do do uh, unmoderated and you can just go with the report or if something intrigues you go in and actually watch it yourself to your point you can have 10 hours of video that you could watch or not watch at your leisure
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, Right. You know, you can look at the high-level reporting, or you can dig deep and watch the individual video files. That's actually where this really started is, you know, I was working on a project where I had uh, just about 10 hours of video that I personally did not have the time or patience to sit and watch. But uh, it turns out I did have the time and patience to build software that would watch (laughs) it for me. (laughs)
0: That's that's usually what I do. I just build something when I don't have that time to do it. (laughs) um, What was I going to say? Uh, so it sounds like if I were to say one of the biggest barriers today without simple Vimthy is the time element. Time is a key, key factor, um, and bias tends to play in as well. When companies and product teams opt not to do the user research, you would say time is one of the factors, bias is another one. Um, obviously you're not going to overcome the issue of companies and product teams that just don't believe in it, which would be kind of odd, but... Um, well, yeah.
2: it, it, there's plenty of teams that, that that have that ego-driven development, right? Like, yeah. I know what to build, I know what my users need and want, yeah. and I'm gonna go build that thing. And that still happens to this very day. We see it all the time. Uh, we saw it a lot when we were at Fresh Old We had companies come to us and say, build us this thing, and we'd be like, well, why do you need that thing? And they'd yeah. start explaining it, and we'd ask them why, you know, three or four or five times, and we'd realize that... They would realize they're, they're initially wrong, even just in that conversation. Um, And with something like empathy and doing this more more quantified user research, you now have evidence. So if you turn around and and make your case to somebody else, like an executive who's really, really intent on doing this thing, this can help you prevent from uh, building the wrong product. And I think
1: that ties into one of the other problems we're trying to solve, and and that is uh, executive buy-in. I think that's one of the the key reasons. Even if a product team knows that they need to be conducting user research, a lot of times they won't have executive buy-in. And one of the reasons for that is is actually because it's qualitative research, meaning that an executive is not going to get uh, key insights out of that qualitative uh, research. They're basically going to get uh, anecdotal evidence. But when they have numbers that back up what this qualitative research is showing, which we're basically trying to, to provide in our quantified uh, reporting, then all of a sudden the executives have, have a very uh, solidified reason why their team should be conducting research uh, using our platform.
0: You know, I, th- I think a, mar- a marriage of the two or a combination to qualitative and quantitative is, is ideal, although the qualitative is often easier to gather. And it sounds like what you're doing is you're continuing to enable the collection of the qualitative, but you're marrying that with some pretty easy to translate into quantitative as a way to break down these traditional barriers to user research. You know, this, this idea that, well, yes, we'd love to do user research, which can't get any quantitative, so why bother? well, no, let's do bother, because the qualitative on its own is certainly valuable. We can also get the quantitative out of that without having to get them to fill out this 10-question right. scaled survey. Exactly, of. and I think the other thing
2: is we've, we now have AI and machine learning algorithms that are robust enough that we can use that have had millions, if not billions, of data points within them to know that, okay, depending, we've seen all different color faces, all with beards, without beards, with glasses, without glasses, uh, different races, genders, et cetera, and we can, we've now got a sense of, yep, we know that this is what happiness looks like. We know that this is what frustration looks like. Um, we know that this tone of voice means uh, delight. This tone of voice means disappointment, right? Um, we have enough data in, in those algorithms to then spit that back on a more quantifiable um, scale, whereas I think previously we didn't have that technology available. So now we're trying to bring this technology to U- UX research
0: are there particular questions or insights that are uh, more appropriate for or more robust when using AI? Should you avoid using AI or is AI more applicable for certain types of user research over others or does it really doesn't doesn't matter? Know. You
1: know, I really don't think it matters. Um, ultimately, if you're going to ask someone a question or ask them to complete a task, um, their emotional response is going to be uh, really valuable. I, I don't think that I, I don't think that it, it necessarily makes a difference. I think it's really just comes back to like best practices in, in terms of conducting research, asking the right questions for the, the, the result that you're looking for as opposed to you know, designing a question because you know that you're
2: using AI. The technology can empower you to do something you maybe hadn't done before, but it's not like the basic research question. Like if you don't, don't have a good basic research question, it's not like this technology is going to make you suddenly a better researcher. Um, or asking better questions, it might give you some insights you haven't had before, or maybe some things that asking the question you didn't, you didn't necessarily think about. But if you ask a really terrible question, you, you may not get the great, greatest results. We can't—that's something we can't necessarily control for. Yeah. The technology can't solve for that.
0: Right? Can't solve for stupid questions.
2: <laughs> but there really are no stupid
0: questions. Right. Of course. They're just you know less effective. Exactly. Less effective. Right. Um, so obviously. A lot of the talk ad nauseum is about Agile versus waterfall and what's the right one and Agile-ish and Scrumfall and all these made-up words. Uh, but for some reason, you know, integrating uh, proper user research can be a challenge in an Agile shop or an Agile-ish shop. Why, why is that the case, do you think?
2: I think it goes back to um, a couple things. things. One is time. Two, I think, is the ability to interpret the results in a way that's actionable. And I think that's what a lot of my experience has shown, is that you, to really do a solid UX research, you might need a good week, two weeks, even more, to really formulate your questions, call your participants, gather your data, um, and then interpret the data, run the analysis, interpret it with yourself. I think we just spoke to somebody at Wayfair the other day, and she talked about really three points of Okay, well, as soon as we do, we're done the research, we have a debrief for the team. Then we do a, um, another, another debrief with, with uh, an extended uh, set of stakeholders to talk, um, talk through things. And then we actually do a, a workshop to finally present it to, to others to see what we can do from that research. So that's a pretty time intensive thing. And I think that when you're a smaller company or a company that's moving really fast, you may not have the time to do that. And so we're trying to help solve by saying, look, you can do this in a faster way And we can help you shave off some of that time. Now you still need to allocate some time to it, but you
0: don't have to allocate it necessarily as much. Are you licensing technology and then putting it, wrapping it around your engine or your platform, or is it soup to nuts? You guys have built it.
1: Yes, we use a combination of different partners, um, basically to pull. those different data streams together that C. Todd spoke about earlier. What we've done is, what we've realized that if we look at one stream of data individually, we don't get actionable uh, data. It it just simply is almost worthless. Mm -hmm. But what we've done is we've actually built our own algorithms that look at these multiple streams of data, look for overlap between them, and then use those those overlaps to, to say with a very high level of certainty, what emotion is present. So if you look at one data stream individually, your, your accuracy level is going to be very, very low. What we've developed is a, a much higher accuracy emotion detection
0: software that's specifically applied to user research. And is there a minimum number of questions and participants in that will render the analysis accurate within a certain level of confidence, or is it, hey, you can have one, one user and that's all it takes because you've got this mass amount of data on the back end.
1: Yeah. We would never want you to make a decision as a, as a researcher or, or come to a conclusion based on what one user says. Fair um yeah. so, so we generally recommend, you know, uh, about a group of five um, test participants. But in terms of the number of questions that you ask them, that's totally flexible. You could ask them as many questions as you'd like. And uh, we just measure the, the emotion for, for each question.
2: Okay. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, best practice and research still applies, like, you know, getting uh, five to ten users to, you know, do a handful of tasks, um, because while the, the algorithms and our partners, they've been time-tested and, and, as Paul said, that, you know, individually they might give you a certain level of confidence, but then we combine them, these three to four different data streams, and then we can give you a much higher level of confidence and tell you things that not the one individual couldn't tell you.
0: Yeah, I guess I wasn't think it was a, a clumsily asked question for sure. I, I didn't mean how many people or users should you interview to come to uh, worthwhile conclusions. It was more about the algorithms that are calculating the emotions or quantifying it. Do you need a certain denominator? Uh, but it sounds like you're, you've already got a, a vast data set that has learned how to interpret emotions and quantify them. And so you can match those up. You can run through one individual. There's no, uh, to to, to quantify it. It's not that, Oh, we need at least 10 individuals to calculate real time. What, what emotion
2: each of the the algorithms we're using is, I think been time tested with, I think you probably know more
0: than this millions and billions of data points (laughs) over the course of years and years and years. Okay. All right. So we had you guys at UX fest and, um, sounds like hopefully you got to talk to a lot of people. What There and elsewhere, What's what's been the early response? Yeah, I mean, the early, early response, you know,
1: uh, a year ago was mixed, right? And that's where we went back to the drawing board and kind of revised these algorithms, pulled in a few more data streams to make this much more accurate, and we just keep putting it in front of people, testing and, and iterating on that feedback. And, of course, CTOD's come in and turned, uh, well not the most beautiful product into something that uh, that we, we can both be pretty proud of, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the feedback at UX Fest was awesome. Uh, we got a lot of, like, really actionable feedback that we could take back to the drawing board and, and you know, just continue iterating. That's kind of the goal.
0: What would have been the biggest, like, holy crap, you know, if you know, just being able to do this is enough for me to say I'm in, or, hey, these three things are really amazing for me. Like, I would love to have this kind of I think the,
2: the thing I, I heard was that there's a, the emotion reaction was, wow, this is really cool. Like, there a lot of, I think a lot of UX people don't realize you can quantify these emotions. You can put a layer of quantitative analysis on this qualitative data, um, thanks to things like machine learning and AI algorithms. So, I think there's, there's, a real, there's that kind of aha realization, like, whoa, okay, this is possible. And I think the other realization is, wait, this can save me some time. But that takes, actually, that's not a conclusion they come to necessarily immediately. I think the early one is just like, whoa, I didn't realize I could do that. Um, and then as they start to, to ask questions and realize that, oh, okay. And I think one of the, the, the uh, clients we talked to, they were like, wow, this can actually really reduce the bias that we have here. Mm-hmm. And that was something that we didn't initially think about until they actually told us like, holy crap, this can reduce all the bias from my different researchers. Because they got you know, researcher A, B, and C working in a really large organization, they may come to different conclusions based on their, their qualitative data sets. This helps them have a more consistent
0: conclusion as well. So, you guys, I don't know if you guys coined this phrase or if it's what you're using um, or if it's common in the industry, but emotion measurement technology? Is that? Yeah, I think that's just
1: a kind of a generic term um, that's used in a lot of the new artificial intelligence uh, emotion recognition software.
0: So, are there other ways and other types of research that that's being used either through you guys or elsewhere in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. It's being used all over the place for all sorts of
1: stuff, um, and that's what's really exciting. Is you know we look at kind of the algorithm that we've developed um, around pulling in these different streams of data for a more accurate emotion detection, um, and we realize that where we're applying it in UX research is really just the beginning. There are so
2: many other places this can be applied. Um, is this like the, the next wave polygraph
0: test? Or? Maybe, but I don't think a day goes <laughs> by
2: where Paul and I don't think about or talk about an idea of an application of this technology in a different industry. And mm-hmm. we all sort of like have to shake our we're focusing on UX research. Yeah, something. that's you know, what I was going so, uh, to say. You can that. really apply this to a lot of places. And I think one of the things that we li- think UX research is great is because it's an unregulated environment, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's not like a lot of medical regulations that have to go in. It's because we talk a lot about some medical applications, especially my partner being a, a surgeon. Uh, there's a lot of medical applications that could benefit from this, but right now we're like, uh, let's focus on what we know we can make work and mm-hmm. we don't have like an overburdened some regulations. Yeah. And we know we can add value to this uh, this user group.
0: Having spent a previous lifetime and career in healthcare technology and Biopharma. I would highly encourage you to stick with that. <laughs> gut, stick with that gut uh, decision to hold off as long as you can. Yeah, it's I was very, in
2: biotech two years ago.
0: Uh, it's very enticing because there are loads of problems to be solved. But man, it is it just fraught with regulation and lack of speed and all that stuff. And the
2: amount of capital we would need to enter that market in time would be
0: far more than we have today <laughs> yeah and, and and phil also i should say with incredibly smart people which is partly the frustrating part that you want to tap into that and there are so many people who um, are more than willing and receptive and in fact craving for uh smarter solutions but they just can't access them for oh i hear course. about it every day from from yeah. my partner she's yeah. she tells me all the time like this and this and
2: this and like oh well we can solve that we could solve that. Yeah. we'll all solve that but it's the, there's a matter of it becomes prioritization, like what can they actually do with the, the bandwidth they have. How has the company, have company or product changed? I mean, obviously, we've only been together for about three or four months. You've probably had a year or so before that of, of trial and error iteration. What's been the sort of pivot and change, and how has the vision for empathy changed since you started and where you're going?
1: Yeah, I mean the vision started really as just a way to record users, um, which, as it turns out, already exists on the market. There are plenty of uh, software platforms out there to conduct usability testing and record people, um, but it's it's really changed in the sense that it's become more about reporting and analytics um, on those usability tests. So that's where you know looking to some of the other usability testing platforms and looking at ways to integrate or take videos from their platform and plug them in so that we can provide our advanced emotion reporting. Uh, that, that researchers can take back to their stakeholders. That's been much more of a priority uh, as of recent. Um, you know, knowing that that there are already existing platforms and trying to tap into those has has become a, a, a priority for sure. Um, one of the other ways I think it's, it's really changed is you know a- around how we can how we can quantify the data. Um, You know, it was something that the first time we met, you know, you were giving a talk on peanut butter and jelly, (laughs) which I didn't even know I was walking into. You know, I thought we were all going to sit around and have sandwiches. You were talking about how, you know, data can can be helpful for designers. And there were a lot of designers there who probably didn't understand the data science side of things, but that's because they're not necessarily capable of putting together all those numbers. So that's where this whole reporting aspect has become really important because a designer needs to be able to look at numbers and understand what they mean without having to, you know, put them into an Excel or without having to kind of crunch those numbers. So uh, changing the focus from just qualitative, here's a video, watch it, maybe put a comment on it, to, here is all of the data that we think is important to you um, and that you can take back to your team and say decisively, here's what we need to do to improve the products um,
2: you know, in, right. the, in the next week. Because if one person might be frustrated with one particular task or one aspect of your product, but let's say the other five aren't, you might be able to say that anecdotally, but if we actually say, no, here's reason why, and you might have somebody who's very passionate about it, they want to fix this one thing because they saw this one user or two users struggle with it, and he's like, yeah, but they're really not as frustrated as everyone else. And we can can actually have that insight and say, well, we don't really need to fix that right now, let's go on to something that has a higher priority and higher ROI than trying to fix this button or this form um, if it's not really really affecting us as much as we think. So it really is tying those two things together. And I think that that data science plus design, I think uh, the the older or the former question was, should designers learn how to code? And I think the, the newer question is, Should designers learn data science? And I think the answer is yes. Do you have to be a practitioner of data science? No. Uh, But do you have to understand numbers and understand uh, what basic data science principles are? Absolutely, because that's gonna make you a better designer.
0: Or in Paul's case, should engineers become user researchers?
2: (laughs) I think
1: the better question is, should engineers become designers? And the answer is uh, definitely no. (laughs) Definitely
0: (laughs) no. What's been the biggest challenge thus far for you guys? I mean, early stage company, starting with a great idea, Sounds like you've done a lot of research and early feedback. What's been the biggest challenge?
2: I think it's always continuing the, the feedback loop and making sure that how we're interpreting that feedback and even eating our own dog food and actually running vet studies on our own product yeah. um, and just getting, uh, getting more people to use it and tell us what works and what doesn't and even if they just do a, a, a simple empathy demo on it. And maybe actually we should give you a, a link at the bottom of your podcast to yeah. like, hey, try it out and try this try this demo and see yeah. what it's like to actually be a participant. Um, I definitely want to do
0: that. Put that on there. Um, cool.
2: Yeah, that would be kind of fun. Anyone can just go through and, and, and test it out. I think that's probably the biggest challenge right now is just getting more and more people to do it. Like everyone's strapped for time, and sometimes people don't quite see the the immediate value, but once they start to dig into it, they're like, oh, wait, this really can help me. Yeah. Um, So that's probably the biggest challenge right now.
0: All right, guys, so this sounds like a really cool technology that could have a lot of benefits to all kinds of product teams, Uh, those that either struggle with doing user research at all or those who feel like that there must be a better way but they just can't seem to access it and get others on board in their organization. So uh, I want to thank you guys for joining us on the show.
2: Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. It's been a pleasure to be here. Good to be right. back.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back, C. Notice doctor. how I kind of
2: got into the like starting to interview Paul as like if I was host.
0: Uh, no, that's good. That's good. You're the insider, so you know you know, you know the questions to ask that Paul's gonna want to answer. So that's good. That's cool. All right, cool. All right guys, take it All easy. Right, thank, you. thank you. The Dirt is a production of fresh tilled soil, a UX and UI design company solving hard design problems and bringing complex product ideas to life. You can find previous episodes of The Dirt on your favorite podcasting platforms, including iTunes and SoundCloud. Be sure and click the follow or subscribe button to receive the latest episodes. And as always, please give us a review and send us feedback. Have an idea for a podcast? Do you want to be a guest of the podcast? Drop us a line at thedirt at freshtilledsoil.com or hit us up on Twitter at The Dirt Show.